I'm sure you guys have been enjoying, uh, or hopefully enjoying some time maybe with family or friends over Thanksgiving. And uh, this Sunday we're continuing our series in First Peter. And, uh, you know, it's really good. Uh, this week as I was preparing and studying this passage, for most of the week I was like, oh, the passage is about this. And then I just had this kind of like nagging feeling that like that wasn't quite right. I was kind of missing it. And thankfully, God helped me and gave me a great wife where I was like bouncing things off her. And I was like, is this really what you think the passage is all about? And she's like, no. Um, and so it was good. And so it was a good, you know, lesson, right? It's like, it's so, so easy for us to come sometimes and read a passage and think, oh, I know what this is about. Rather than taking the time to really slow down and say, maybe I don't know what it's about. I want to dig in and see what God has for me. And when you do that, it's always better than what you first thought coming in. And so I'm really excited about this sermon and really this passage in 1 Peter is all about God's great building plan. Uh, God is this master builder, and he's building this beautiful building. And that building is the church. And maybe when you hear that, potentially you're thinking like, wait a minute, if the church universal is a building, it feels more like it's like half completed, kind of broken down at some points, has some scorch marks from infighting here or there. Like, is that really God's great and beautiful building? Yes. Yes, it is. Even amidst all the mess. And that's why we need this passage this morning, because what we need is we, we so often see the church through our own eyes, and sometimes we can see all the hard things about it. And this morning, we get to sort of speak, look at the master architect's drawing plans and see his vision for the beautiful church he's still in process of building. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And, as, uh, and I remember reading a book called The Unfinished Church by a pastor named Rob Benz, and I really love uh, this quote he has. He says this, The biggest issue facing the church in our day is that few believers truly understand the significance of God's church, what God is doing in and through his people, and his long-term plan for the church. Do we really understand the beauty and significance of the church and what God is trying to do through it? Well, hopefully this morning, we'll start to get a picture of that as we spend time listening to God speak. So let me pray for us that we'd have ears to hear. Father, thank you so much that we gather this morning, as we've already heard, as, as people that are not perfect, that are, are sinners. And yet, if we have trusted in Christ, we are forgiven, loved, redeemed. And both of those identities seem to be always at play, not just individually, but in the church. But I pray that this morning you would help us to see the church as you see her. That you would help us to value the church the way you do and be encouraged this morning. And maybe even for some of us this morning who have never captured this vision to see it for the first time and to love Jesus and to love his people more as a result of listening to your word. So would you speak, Father? And would you help us to listen? Amen. Amen. So let me read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is God's word. So this morning, I want us to look at the significance of God's building the church, the service of God's church, and then the security of God's church. And we're going to spend a good chunk of our time on that first point and move a little faster through the next two. So the significance of God's church. If you think about it, right, there's been many building projects throughout human history, right? You can think of the pyramids or great temples built in Greece, or you can think of empires that have been built by Alexander the Great and Caesar and Napoleon, and yet all of them, as great as they are, what's left of them now? Ruins, tourist sites, there's nothing really that has been substantial that is, that is left. The greatest building project Peter wants to tell us about is God's, and it begins with the laying of one cornerstone. It all hinges on this one cornerstone that starts the whole project off. So who is this cornerstone? We, if you look at the passage, the first couple of verses are kind of this positive response to him. The last couple are kind of this more negative response. And right in the middle, kind of this hinge verse, is verse 6, where Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the key right here, the cornerstone. And that word for cornerstone is really interesting because you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, and this word is only ever used in the New Testament and in a couple early church fathers. It shows up nowhere else in any other Greek literature. So people have debated, well, what does it actually mean? Is it cornerstone? Some people have thought it's a capstone. You know, like you're building an arch, and the very last stone that ends up there is there. So it's like the great one. But as you think about it, when you read later that you can stumble over it, it makes more sense it's a foundation stone. It's a, the first foundation stone to be laid in, the corner stone. Not just a little brick that we stick in a building with the date like this building was built in 1972. Like, that's more like, that's cool. That doesn't, the whole building doesn't hinge on that, right? The cornerstone's like the first and big foundation stone that from that point on determines how the building is built. And that's what God is doing. He's laying this beautiful foundation stone. And we need a good foundation, right? I mean, if you're going to build a building, I don't know if any of you have done that. It doesn't matter if it's a shed or anything. You need a good foundation, right? The foundation's bad. No matter how good the building is, eventually you're going to have major problems. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, this traveling Christian speaker, one time was speaking at, at Ohio State University. And as he was dr- being driven to the the meeting room by a student from the airport. The student pointed out the, the Wexner Center for Performing Arts, which he said, this is really cool. It's like the first really postmodern building. The, the designer, he said, really built it to reflect the randomness of life. And there's stairways in the building that go nowhere. And there's pillars that do nothing. And, and uh, just, it's just showing just the randomness of life. And Ravi Zacharias said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, did, he, did he have the same philosophy with the foundation? course not. He built the foundation right. Because even that beautiful building with all its oddities cannot stand without a good foundation. You need a good foundation. And so God says, when I'm building my building, I'm going to start with the best, right? A cornerstone chosen and precious. 
I'm going to pick the best for my foundation, this beautiful cornerstone. And this quote that, that Peter's pulling from is from the book of Isaiah. And so it's really good to know, okay, well, if God's laying this cornerstone, and Isaiah was the first one to talk about it, what's the context? So let's travel back in time to figure out what's going on with this cornerstone so we can understand what it means today for us. Well, if you travel back in time to Isaiah's day, it's about 740 B.C., and Israel is a nation, and they are God's nation. God's been choosing to reveal himself through one nation. And their whole identity is wrapped up as being God's people. And that's seen most clearly in Jerusalem, the holy city where the king appointed by God rules, and in the temple, the place where the holy God meets with sinful human beings because there are priests there that offer sacrifices to pay for sin. Right? That's, that's the context, right? But the problem is God's people around this point were not exactly living in a way that pleased God. They were often disobeying God, but then they'd go to their temple and do the temple bit and say, we're cool. We can totally disobey God most of the time, but as long as we go to the temple and do our little temple bit, we're okay. Sounds kind of familiar, right? We just do this little religious bit over here, then we can live our lives how we want. And the big problem is they had shifted their confidence, their trust, their loyalty from the God who's represented in the temple to the temple itself, right? The temple's not a bad thing in their day. It's where you're supposed to meet with God. But instead of trying to actually meet with God, they just took confidence in the temple. So even the prophet Jeremiah around the same time tells the people, stop saying, look, look, the temple. As long as the temple's there, we're fine. God used to dwell in a tent, he said, and he allowed it to be destroyed when you were disobeying. Don't think that God won't also let the temple be destroyed. He's, he's so big, he doesn't live in that temple. That's the meeting spot, but the temple and God are not synonymous. And yet, they had all this confidence in the temple. And so God gives them this word of judgment. And so let me read a little bit more context from Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 18. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Right? They've got this confidence that he says doesn't hold up. So therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. Do you see the context here? God's people are trusting in something else. They're not obeying God. So he's saying, look, I'm going to bring judgment. And your only hope is this cornerstone I'm laying. I'm going to build something new for you to trust in. I'm going to ask you to shift your allegiance from the temple as just this thing to me and the cornerstone that I'm laying. And in fact, the cornerstone isn't just something God's laying, but in Isaiah 8, which is also quoted in our passage, we read this in verse 13, 
But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You see that again, that context of judgment coming. But what's interesting is he says, I'm the stone. I'm the one you actually need to trust in, right? So God's saying, there's something new I'm doing. It's not just this temple. The thing is, the people back then didn't listen. Most of them didn't. And so destruction came. The Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, send the people into exile. But a remnant, a small group, still believed and trusted. And God brought them back to the land, and they built a new temple. But what's really interesting is every time God's tabernacle and then temple were first built, his glory so filled it, it was like this huge cloud, and no one could enter it. But when the people come back from exile and build a new temple, the glory never fills it that way. It's almost as if God's saying, this isn't the new cornerstone I'm laying. I'm doing something else. There's another building that I'm building, and it's not this physical temple anymore. Now I'm going to be building something else. And when Jesus showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago and was talking with the Jewish leaders of his day, who again cared all about the temple and how beautiful it was and their system, he said, you guys don't get it. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the meeting place between God and man. You're missing it. I'm the cornerstone. But again, many Jews did not believe. And so what happened? Jerusalem destroyed. The temple destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. And the temple's never been rebuilt. Because that's not what God's doing anymore as a physical building. He's building something on Jesus now. Jesus is going to be the beginning of a new temple. And Peter, who wrote this letter, says that in the book of Acts. He says this in Acts chapter 4. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's what God's working through. And again, there's that call to shift your trust in him for salvation and refuge. He is the temple. And in the Gospel of John, we see this actually amazingly. It says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And that word dwelt among us is the word tabernacled amongst us. Or literally, he was the temple amongst us. And guess what? Where does the glory show up? In Jesus. Not in a physical building. The glory shows up now in this new temple, Jesus. He's the one, it's all a, he's the amazing cornerstone that God's going to do everything through. And so we're called, we're called to believe in him, right? Go back to verse 6 of our passage. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We're invited, as verse 4 says, to come to him. Come to him, a living stone. But this is crazy. We don't just come to him, the living stone rejected by men in his death, and chosen by God, though, in his resurrection, we come to him, and when we do so, what does Peter say? You yourselves are like what? Living stones being built up as a spiritual house. I mean, 
this is crazy. Like, it's amazing to think, okay, yeah, God's not working through a physical building. He's working through Jesus. But right here, Peter says, no, no, it's more amazing than that. When you come to Jesus, you become another stone in the temple. You become corporally all together the temple, the dwelling place of God with man. You become a spiritual house, a house in which God's spirit lives and dwells. Not just you individually, although that's true, God's spirit lives in you individually, but together, as one body, we are the place where God dwells, where the holy God dwells on earth amongst his people. That's true. You all, plural. I sometimes wish we had y'all in an English Bible. Y'all, Y'all are like living stones. Not you and you and you. Y'all are like living stones being built up. This is our identity together. And maybe you think, wow, like, but like every one of us individually isn't that special, and that's true. But together, we're something. It's kind of like a mosaic, you know? I've seen people build mosaics. Like, they'll grab a piece of broken tile that are useless, and they put them all together in this amazingly beautiful mosaic. Or they'll take a piece of broken glass, different colored glass, and they'll put it all together and make this beautiful picture. And God's saying, that's what I'm doing. When every one of you broken pieces of glass or broken tiles or shards of pottery come to me, I stick you in this beautiful mosaic called the church. And the picture that the church shows, the mosaic is a picture of Jesus, who it all hinges on. And it's not just Peter that talks about this. Paul, in the letter of Ephesians, talks about this same thing. He says this in chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's not your identity anymore. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See that same language again. Built on the cornerstone, built up. And here Paul explicitly uses the language of temple and a dwelling place of God. So that's why um, I know when we talk about Sunday mornings with our kids, we always tell them, hey, we're gathering with the church on Sunday. We're not going to church. Church isn't a place anymore. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a people we gather with. It's a family. And there's something about God dwelling with us all together that's more significant than just on our own. Just like any one piece of glass on its own isn't that special, but put into a mosaic is beautiful. So every Christian on their own is not as special as when we're all together as one family. That's why the Bible has no category for a Christian who says, I love Jesus, but I'm not really connected to a church. It's like, okay, that'd be like saying, oh, I'm married, but I don't live with my wife, and we never do anything together or talk at all or, or you know, do anything together. It's like, wait, you're, you're married? Really? I mean, what? That doesn't make any sense, right? In the same way, it's like if you're with Jesus, then you're a stone built in this building, and you can't be like, well, I don't want to be touching any other stones. You know, it's just me and the cornerstone. Like, I need a little space here, no other stones next to me. Like, you're not going to be built up in anything beautiful if you're not stuck next to some other stones that might rub against you a little bit. It's not always comfortable, but God's building something beautiful in it. 
And that's why our communal identity, community is such a big value here. And that's why we value membership, saying we're going to commit to being part of the big C church in one particular place. We're going to get slotted in somewhere and be up against somebody and be together. Is that how you view church? This beautiful building that God is doing to show forth his glory? Not just a weekly activity, not just some people you have to try to get along with. And I know it's hard sometimes, but do you have the eyes of faith to say, I'm going to look beyond what I just sometimes feel to see how God views this thing. And I'm going to value it that way too. Because the significance of the church is that as one body, we are the dwelling place of God. That's the significance. Well, if that's our significance, what is our service as a church? Or to use our lingo, what's our mission if that's who we are as a community? Well, verse 5 continues and gives us our mission. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are priests in the temple offering sacrifices, right? If we're the temple, then there's got to be priests as the go-between, between people outside and with God. And Jesus is the high priest, but every one of us is given this amazing privilege to be priests, to be people that pray for others to God and intercede for them and speak of God to others, right? That's what a priest did. That's what we get to be. But we don't offer physical sacrifices like like the job description of you is not like to go and kill a lamb once a year and sprinkle blood anymore. That's, that's not how it works anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice. So what are the sacrifices we bring? Well, Scripture talks about this a lot. So Romans 12.1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You, pr- you bring yourself. You bring everything that you are as an act of worship to serve God. Or Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16 says this. Hebrews, th- Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says there, every time you're talking about how great Jesus is, whether in worship this morning or to someone that doesn't know Jesus, that's a sacrifice beautiful to God. Every time you do good, every time you share what you have, every time you're hospitable and do acts of mercy, that is beautiful sacrifices, pleasing to God. And Philippians 4.18 gives us another way. He says, Paul says this, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And the context here is he's saying, look, Philippians, thank you for sending me a monetary gift so I can keep preaching the gospel. Your monetary gift to further gospel ministry is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's it's our time, it's our resources, it's our money, it's everything we are given in service to God, given to love the family, given to share the gospel with outsiders, given to build up the church. That is our act 
of worship. And notice, it's acceptable to God through Jesus. I love that phrase, through Jesus. That's good news, friends. Because if our good deeds were only acceptable to God on our own merit, we might be in trouble, right? How do you know if it was good enough? How do you know if your motives were pure enough? How do you know if you really did enough to be acceptable? Through Jesus. Just as you were invited into this building by grace, so even all your service in the temple is by God's grace. Notice that the emphasis on this passage is not on what we do, right? The passage doesn't say, come to Jesus. It says, as you come to him. It doesn't say, build yourselves up. It says, you yourselves are being built up. God's the one drawing. God's the one building. And God's the one who makes our sacrifices acceptable to God. It's kind of like this, you know, uh, um, I remember a pastor friend of mine was tell, telling this great illustration where he said when he was like, you know, seven or eight, they had a craft fair at school. And his mom gave him like five bucks to go buy something from the craft fair. And he bought like this really cheap chintzy bracelet and gave it to her at Christmas. And she loved it, right? It's like, wow, thanks so much for buying this for me. Who bought the bracelet? The mom, right? And that's what God's like. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you all the grace you need. And then you'll use that grace and kind of do some sacrifices that really probably don't really measure up. But because I love you through Jesus, I'll go like, wow, what a great chintzy bracelet you gave me. I'm so excited that you served me in that way. But he paid for it all. Isn't that good news? It's grace through and through. Grace that invites us in and grace that empowers us. It's all through Jesus but I think sometimes we have a hard time really believing that, right? It's like, yeah, but there's got to be something like, I'm supposed to like earn or prove here. Like, okay, God like got me in by grace, but he's going to hang that over my head. Like, I got you in through Jesus, so you better measure up now. That's not how God is. He makes us acceptable through Jesus. We serve acceptably through Jesus. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, Andrew Peterson, has this great quote where he says, I've got blood on these hands that hold on to the truth that I am a prince and a priest in the kingdom of God. I'm a sinner. I've got blood on my hands, but I hold on to the truth that I am a prince and a priest in the kingdom of God because of Jesus. So if you get that the mission you're being sent on is to be priests to offer sacrifices to God and it's through grace then just go serve faithfully just respond out of gratitude and be people that serve God and last point the security of God's church see the thing is I think when we hear all of this we can sometimes really feel like well you're saying this beautiful picture of the church and this beautiful mission but it doesn't always feel like that right here, right now, right? Like if the church is supposed to be this amazing, beautiful structure that God's building that's growing, sometimes it feels like the church is being beaten up and under attack. And sometimes it feels like we're just like total failures. Like, is this thing actually going to work? Will it actually be built up? Will it finally come to fruition or is the whole thing just going to end in ruin? 
And Peter's readers probably were feeling that, right? Because they're, they're there 2,000 years ago, and they're being pushed to the margin of society. They're outsiders, and they're wondering, really? Is this really the beautiful building, or is actually that other stuff the spot we should be? And so Peter ends these last couple of verses showing us that the security, the confidence of the church lies in God's sovereignty. He says, look, verse 7, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, hey, do you remember when Jesus was around? And on Good Friday, he was hanging on a cross dying, and then we took him down and buried him in a tomb? Did it look then like God's plan was working? Did it look like Jesus was going to be the start of something amazing and new? No. It looked like everything was falling apart. But was it? No. The very act of rejection, the very rejection of him by the builders is what has made him the cornerstone. The very fact that Jesus died is what has led to his resurrection and offering life to any who believe in him. The very thing that looked like ruin in God's sovereignty was actually used to further the plan. And Peter highlights this in his speech again in Acts chapter 4. He says this in verse uh, 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They had all their plans. They made their choices. They thought they were ruining everything, but actually it was all part of the plan. So believer, says Peter, take comfort. When it looked like Jesus was not receiving any honor and was being left out, he actually was vindicated. So don't worry. In the end, the honor will come to you. You will not be ashamed. You will not be ashamed to have cast your lot in with Jesus in the end. And not only that, but when it looks like maybe the church is the minority, and when it looks like more people are rejecting him, don't panic. Don't panic if those people persecute you. Don't, don't freak out and go, yeah, but is God going to have enough stones to pull it off? Don't worry about that. Look at verse 8. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Don't worry if people are rejecting God. That, too, is part of his plan. That, too, is not outside of his sovereign will. Don't freak out. I knew about this back in 740 B.C. when through Isaiah I spoke and said, yeah, I'm going to be a cornerstone, but for others, they're going to stumble over me. That's part of the plan. Don't freak out when you see that happening. Wayne Grudem, I think, summarizes this point really well with this quote. He says, Peter's purpose in making this comment is to comfort his readers. He has shown that the rejection of Christ and even the hostile unbelief which confronted these Christians on every side were predicted by God long ago in the Old Testament. Now he says that they were not only predicted, but also planned by God and are therefore within the scope of his sovereign and wise plan for the world. Hostile unbelief should not terrify Christians against whom it is directed. For God their Father holds it all under his control and will bring it to an end when he deems it best. 
amazing as it may seem, even the stumbling and disobedience of unbelievers have been destined by God. Now, we really need to be careful here what that means, because we can swing to two extremes. One extreme we can say, okay, destined. See, God's just this puppet master, and he just pulls the strings, and we move, and we don't have any choices. That's not what Scripture teaches. Peter says, they disobey. They chose to disobey. But neither let us water down what destined means, to say, well, God's just this helpless kind of spectator, hoping they'll make the right choice. No, God is the author of all history. He's writing it all. It will happen as he wants. And yet, at the same time, we're all characters that make choices. You have to hold on to both. And if you do, then your choices matter, but you can rest and trust in the fact that the story will turn out good because God's writing the story. So don't worry if it feels like the church isn't always what it's supposed to be. God knows where she'll get to. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. So take comfort. So God is building this beautiful church. Do you see its significance? Will you come to him? Will you join yourself to a local body and say, hey, I'm part of this thing through Jesus. And now I just want to serve. I want to do acts of worship. I want to do good. I want to praise God with lips. I want to give financially to the work of ministry, right? That's, that's what I want to do. I want to see the church built up. And in the midst of all the hardness of that, I can trust that God is at work. He will build his church. And in the end, it will be this beautiful structure that I will not have been ashamed to have been connected to. You won't go wrong if you trust in the cornerstone and become part of this beautiful building that God's doing for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are not a God who is far off. You're not a God who is only limited to a few finding you. You're not a God who is um, distant or who demands from us, but you're a God who has said, I've done the work. I've laid Jesus as the cornerstone. I've paid the price through the death and resurrection of my son. Come, and I will build you up. I will give you the grace you need to serve me. So I pray this morning that we would be encouraged by that picture, that we would take comfort in the fact that you are doing this great work and you will see it through. And I pray you'd help us just to be faithful, to keep coming to you, keep trusting you, and keep just serving faithfully resting in the fact that you will take everything we have and make it acceptable to you through Christ. Amen.